The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today. I hope you're all having a wonderful fall Monday. It's a gorgeous day in New Hampshire. And um, we have a very interesting show for you this week. Um, We're going to be talking about um, physician drug abuse. And I think we can probably throw in a little information about nurses and other medical personnel as well. And I think it's important for everybody to understand that um, that addiction or brain diseases, and nobody is invincible and nobody gets a pass when it comes to um, contracting these diseases. And I'd like to introduce to you our guest today, Dr. Stephen Farber, who um, received his medical degree from Hanneman Medical College and Hospital in Pennsylvania. He completed an internal medicine residency program in cardiology cardiology fellowship at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Dr. Farber also specialized in the diagnosis and treatment of cardiovascular diseases for for over 25 years. He founded Heart of Montgomery County, a nonprofit organization created to improve access to affordable health care for the community's indigent and uninsured population. In 2003, Dr. Farber published Behind the White Coat, a personal memoir, and co-authored Stepping Stones to Success with Deep Chopra and Jack Canfield in 2011. His latest book, which is what we'll be focusing on, is called As Sick as Our Secrets. It's a very powerful and compelling description of Dr. Farber's journey um, through his illness and back to recovery. He uh, recently received a master's degree in healthcare administration from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Farber, thank you for uh, agreeing to be on our show and for discussing this very uh, poignant um, experience in your life and shining light on the fact that um, all people from all professions contract the disease of addiction. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on your talk show, Mary. Um, I, I guess, you know, in reading, um, in reading your book, I'm also a nurse as well as a licensed alcohol and drug counselor, and I was just really impressed that you got to work with Dr. DeBakey, who is, you know, certainly one of the preeminent positions of our gener- of our generation, I guess, or for probably for many generations. Well, I was very fortunate to work for under one of the best <clears throat> surgeons in the world, and um, he was an incredible man and an incredible surgeon, and very very interesting personality to work under. <laughs> I bet. I think um, 
what it might be helpful for our audience to understand is during that process, can you give us a snapshot of what it was like to be in um, medical school and in residency? Um, what was that experience like? I, I think a lot of people don't understand what medical training involves. And um, part of what I wrote about was really a, a description of what medical training is like. Uh, it's more than long hours. It is an incredibly stressful experience uh, where you, it's like I would describe it as similar to a hazing in a fraternity. Uh, the number of things that you have to do uh, over a period of many, many years and the stress you're under, essentially it's a weeding out process. And uh, the, I believe that the, the goal is to train physicians uh, to be the best physicians possible from the standpoint of knowledge. But I think our education system of medical professionals is somewhat um, lacking from the standpoint of understanding that physicians and other medical profession, professionals are human. And we have the same problems that other human beings have when it comes to dealing with stress. But working under some of the greatest people in the world <clears throat> had its, its advantages. I certainly was, uh, I was taught an incredible amount of knowledge, but it was also extremely stressful. Uh, and working under Dr. Becky was a blessing, but he was also a very stern teacher and very rigid in his demands. And uh, it, was, it required a lot of mental tenacity, I think, to be able to work and create an incredibly stressful environment for such long periods of time. And I think one of the things that I feel about medical training very, very strongly is that there should be some changes in the way we train physicians that recognize the fact that physicians are human and to make it less traumatic because it is a traumatic experience to be trained throughout medical school and residency program. Long hours, the stress on your personal life, the toll it takes, on you from many, many aspects is incredible. And there are a lot of statistics that show that, um, that physicians and early in their training, internships, interns and residents who work more than, we work commonly more than 80 to 100 hours a week, uh, experience an extreme amount of depression and mental illness uh, due to this incredible number of hours of work uh, that, we, that, we're, that we're, we have to become used to in training. So there, there's an incredible amount of, of stress and, and toll that it takes emotionally on physicians in training. Well, I think especially in your discipline, which um, was cardiology, is that it was almost like being, if for, and you alluded to this in your book, if, if people ever watched MASH when the helicopters came in, I mean, you were going from one crisis to another to another. You were at a teaching hospital, and I'm sure all the severe cases wanted to be there because of Dr. DeBakey. So I can't imagine the just just being constantly on. We have to be constantly on your game. The, there is no real room for error, very little margin for error in medicine. And a lot's expected of, of a physician, not just by people who train you, but your peers and also by your patients. Uh, <clears throat> I think a lot of times patients expect their physicians to be superhuman. And we're just not. Uh, I felt a lot of times that, you know, I'd be out having, be at my son's football game or, you know, trying to just have 
something simple like dinner with my family. And, you know, I, had, I felt like I had to be essentially uh, like a Superman who changes, put on his cloak in, in, a, in a phone booth and suddenly be available to um, try to help the next person who came with a heart attack. Uh, it's hard to have a personal life. Medicine's a jealous mistress, as I described in my book. And um, in my first book in particular, I discussed that in quite, quite a bit of depth that medicine is a jealous mistress. And for me personally, it took a great toll on my personal life and, and I had several failed marriages, which had a lot to do with the long hours that I worked. You know, I think for our audience, it's also important for, for folks to understand that, um, the, you know, while there are many other careers that are very um, stressful, when you have people's life hanging in the balance based on your your decisions, that's that takes stress to another level. And unless you've experienced it, it's really hard to describe it. Um, you know, and I and I don't know what it's like now. But when I got out of nursing school, I worked in the operating room for three years, and you know, there were a group of doctors that every Tuesday they went out to lunch and had a couple martinis and came back and operated in the afternoon, and nobody questioned it. I mean, there was like this this kind of thought that, you know, these guys work hard, they're under a lot of stress and they're going to go have a couple martinis, they're going to come back and they're going to be relaxed. And and I think within the, the medical community, there's a really high tolerance sometimes for ineffective ways to cope with your stress. Well, I think physicians are not educated in how to deal with their stress. <clears throat> and that is part of the problem with medical training. I uh, think that uh, it's not uncommon for physicians in training to start drinking or start using substances for a number of reasons. Uh, I started drinking alcohol with some of my buddies in medical school and, and um, you know, during my internship. And it, it is a way to cope with your daily stress. I think <clears throat> for me, uh, practicing medicine, and I think it is for a lot of physicians, it gets actually has gotten more complex than it used to be. Uh, when I finished my training, I felt you know that there would be the light at the end of the tunnel to where my life would get better and more tolerable with less stress, that I'd be able to get more time off. But it didn't work that way because the way medicine has changed and the incredible um, things that technologically that have advanced medicine and patient care, there are so many more things that we have to offer patients. The, the, uh, for example, in cardiology, which is my particular field, the way we treated heart attacks when I first went to practice was very different than the way we treated heart, heart attacks, you know, uh, five or six years ago. And presently, uh, we used to be able to <clears throat> give patients, you know, medications, have them stay overnight, and then, you know, reevaluate re them the next morning. You know, basically, much more simple approach to do a cardiac cath. But now, you have to be in within 90 minutes and put the catheter and the balloon across the artery during an acute uh, myocardial infarction or heart attack. So the, the need to become, uh, to be available actually uh, has gotten uh, incredibly greater and, and much more demanding as I've gotten older. And, you know, the, I think as we all age, we, we sometimes become less able to adapt to stresses and to getting less sleep. And I think that, that the, the holy grail for me, and probably for a lot of physicians, that holy grail at the end of the uh, the rainbow never came about, and the feeling I, I wound up working as hard in my profession 20 years into my practice as I did when I was an intern and resident. 
the hours were very similar. I still worked about 80-hour weeks, and I was in solo practice. So the, the complicated um, you know, delivery system we have and the technology has put an incredible amount of demands on, on physicians. So it really has been, a, it's an incredible, uh, tense profession, very demanding. And I think part of the problem is, is I believe that physicians are workaholics and tend to put themselves last. Uh, I found that for myself. I tend to put my own problems and personal life on the back burner. And many times came home at night to tell my family, my kids, I had, you know, basically my tank was running on empty because I gave all of myself that I could during the day, and I came home exhausted many times, just like I did in my internship and residency when I came home and pretty much ate and went to sleep and didn't have much time to spend with my wife. And it, it, um, you know, it's one of those things where you physicians need to learn to put themselves first. It's like when you when you go on a plane and the flight attendant tells the the families, you know, first you put the oxygen on yourself and then your children. Well, it's the same thing, I think, with physicians. Uh, medicine attracts people who are workaholics and are very dedicated, very often compulsive people. And we want to, we aim for perfection and to be the best physicians we can and very often put our own problems in the back burner. And for me, I noticed that that was something that uh, kept me from dealing with. Medicine was something that eventually kept me from dealing with my own problems to the point where uh, they, my problems began to eat away at me over time and really made me one sick individual by the time I was 50. So eventually, these problems take their toll if they're not addressed. And I think in a lot of physicians, I think one of the reasons why substance abuse is incredibly high in the, me- in the medical profession is that doctors bury their problems in their work and put themselves last. Well, and they also have access to um, medications that the general public don't. Um, oh, absolutely. Well, and we'll be right back with um, more after this commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Make the most of your beautiful life. Listen to Ageless Living with Dr. Tong Lee and co-host Kurt Wilhelm to gain tips on how to live healthier and happier, alleviate suffering, prevent disease, become more beautiful in body, mind, and fashion, and find peace balance and success in your life are you aware that every 3500 calories that you eat above what you burn will put a pound of fat on your body and running one mile only burns 200 calories so portion size does matter and migraines do have a cure what is it you'll have to tune in tuesdays at 3 p.m pacific 6 p.m eastern on voice america health and wellness Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. 
The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Farber, and we're talking about um, substance abuse and depression and trauma with um, with Dr. Farber. Uh, he's written two books, um, Behind the White Coat and As Sick as Our Secrets, that um, are basically memoirs of his own experience, um, both with his, with his addiction and recovery. And before we went to break, um, Dr. Farber was talking about how um, a lot of physicians use um, alcohol or, or other substances to cope with the stress. And, um, you know, back probably less than 10 years ago, drug salesmen would come to um, doctor's offices, they would come to hospitals, they would come to mental health clinics, and they would be there to to tell you about the new uh, medications that are available. They would give samples, and oftentimes um, physicians would have samples of all kinds of medications, and we used to lock them up. So the good side about that was people who didn't have insurance, the docs could give them um, enough samples until they were able to find a, a way to um, pay for the medication. The other side of that is is that um, I can remember um, being told as a nurse that uh, Valium wasn't addictive when Valium first came out. I can remember um, having a, a very heated um, discussion with a psychiatrist at a mental health center in probably 1992. Um, and she was saying that benzodiazepines weren't addictive, and I was telling her, oh, but they were, and she was saying to me, but while the drug company says they're not, and there's no research to say that there is, um, consequently, there has been research, and we know they're very addictive. So um, I think that doctors are also kind of put in a position where they're getting all this information, and sometimes bad information. And um, I know you would uh, shared in your book about using Xanax, and you were told that it wasn't addictive. Uh, Pfizer, excuse me, touted as Xanax as being a non-addictive anti-anxiety medication. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, pharmaceutical reps pretty well bought their way into your office, and they would buy you gifts, take you out to dinner, and one pharmaceutical company even took me to the Super Bowl one year. Yeah, that was Searle. And I think that um, those days are gone. I think, fortunately, government regulations are a little more stringent now about what pharmaceutical companies can do to lobby physicians to use their medications and what they can give physicians to try to buy them. And I I think that uh, a lot of the information, as you said earlier, that that physicians get is somewhat jaded. 
and some of the studies are bent that the drug companies do are, are bent in their direction because they're done by people very often that they hire to do the studies. So some of the data that they get is not the most accurate. From my, from my standpoint, my um, addictions really started with the samples of Xanax that were left in my office. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, my life was stressful as it is for a lot of physicians and professionals in general, and um, they left a bottle of supposedly safe medication, and I decided that I was going to test drive them to see how they worked. And um, before I knew it, the Xanax pretty much took over my life, and um, it, they, those pills became indispensable, and they, they became like my American Express card. You don't leave home without it. And as time went by, I became more and more uh, addicted to the medication, and I developed a greater tolerance to it, which means that my system became more used to it, and I required an increasing dose of it. And before I knew it, I needed that pill to function. It worked great. Uh, it, you know, it decreased my anxiety. It was really good for that and for depression from my depression, but it took a huge toll. And then eventually when, the, when I started taking a lot of it, it began to interfere with my personal life and uh, I, my reaction time slowed and it actually distanced me from people who I loved and uh, made me a little bit less effective. So the, these drugs tend to delude you by making them think that they're your, your friend. I, initially, I thought Xanax was my new best friend and it turns out that it was very... It was a lie, and um, you know I think as uh, for people, a lot of people with addictions, uh, that you become, uh, you know, essentially uh, you go in through a period of denial and really don't want to think that you have a problem with these medications, but they 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 start to take over your life, and uh, what initially you feel gives you peace of mind actually robs you of it. But it the this problem is very common in the medical profession. Doctors have the ability to help addicts, but they also have the ability to create addicts by prescribing medications that may not always be necessary and, you know, not using other methods of treatment and not just with their patients, but with themselves and even their families. I know some, some physicians' families that, you know, have, you know, essentially where the addiction was created by a physician prescribing patient uh, you know, pills for his or her wife it, or family member. It, it's something that I think physicians need to be much more aware that this problem exists and, um, you know, how, the, how drug, how prescription drug abuse is, is so rampant in our society that it is an epidemic, especially to opiates. Um, it, it was you know, the Center for Disease Control, I think it was two, 2011 or 12, stated that um, one person dies every 19 minutes from prescription drugs. And it's, it, it is an epidemic in our society. In the medical profession, it's, the statistics are that 16% of physicians have a problem with alcohol or drugs. And the majority of these are prescription drugs. And um, there's a lot of power in the pen. Physicians can't prescribe these medicines, as I said earlier, very easily. And, um, you know, it's the access there, these drugs in the hospital. A number of physicians I know have developed a problem with fentanyl or another medication, especially anesthesiologists or people who work in operating rooms where these drugs are, are right there uh, for them, right under their noses, and the temptation to self-medicate is there, and it, it's sometimes overwhelming uh, for physicians uh, to deal with. So it is yeah, a I huge problem in the profession, a huge problem. It is, and I, and I think that, um, you know, 
you had written your first book, Behind the White Coat, as a result of your use of Xanax, but you got off of that, didn't you, for a while? Uh, yes, I did. I got off the off Xanax over a period of time with some help from professionals, and I had to get off of it because it started to interfere with my with my life, and it actually led to a divorce. And it came down to my needing to get off Xanax to be able to have a relationship with my children. So I was able, I was fortunately able to wean off the Xanax, and um, it was not ordered by the court, but it was something that I had to do if I was going to to be able to establish or and keep a relationship with my, with my with my children. And if it wasn't for that, I'm who knows, I might have continued. But unfortunately, the Xanax led you know led way to a lot of other problems with other drugs down the road. It was it opened the door and and unfortunately that when your brain becomes used to certain things and the dopamine gets released and again there is a physical aspect to addiction that a lot of people don't understand it is a physical disease uh, in a lot of, in a lot of ways that your body becomes addicted to the production of hormones and neurotransmitters that give, give it pleasure make it feel better make you feel better and um, you know that this can open the door for other substances as well and in my case it did. I'm just wondering, um, when you were doing surgery, how much of a history did you take on somebody's alcohol use or drug use prior to their surgery, or how much training did you get in that when you were in medical school? We're, we're trained to ask about drug use and alcohol use as part of the physical history, rather. And um, but, but doctors are really not trained well in helping people deal with their trauma. And really, most doctors don't know how to ask the right questions about addiction. When I went through medical school, there really was no training in addiction. And I think that, uh, that that's an important part of medical training. Physicians need to be aware of the problem, and not just in others, but the potential problem in themselves. That they themselves, this can happen to anybody. I don't care what your profession is, and I'm a prime example of the fact that you can be on the top of the mountain, be have everything in life. You could have most success in the world, and the next minute you could be in the gutter, and you could feel that your life is <clears throat> nothing could be better. You know that everything's going great, and then addiction can take control of your life and then and change it in a heartbeat. And I think that no profession, no person's immune to this. And again, I'm, a, I'm that's part of the reason I wrote my book was to tell people that no one is immune that your, your life can change very, very easily uh, with, from addiction. That can destroy. It's so destructive that it can really... It's a monster who's really, whose sole purpose is to torture, torture us, kill us, and destroy our lives. That is what addiction is. And it's, it's a very painful addiction. It's a very painful illness for the individual and for everyone around them. Um, I think that... When we think about addiction, sometimes we think about, well, that person did that to themselves, especially within the medical community. It's like it's a self-inflicted disease. And um, I know here in New Hampshire, we've taken people over who've been inebriated to the emergency room, and they're, they're acutely, you know, ill, but they get pushed aside, you know. But the, but the person with heart disease who's still 300 pounds and eating horrible diet consumed with chest pain and they get pushed to the front of the, of the queue. And, and I think that there's a real bias sometimes within the medical profession on treating people who have addiction. 
Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think that uh, when I remember times when I was an intern working at Bentop Hospital in Houston, where we'd have, for example, somebody come in with an overdose, and we'd have to do stomach lavage and put charcoal through a tube into their stomach and intubate them. And um, the attitude of a lot of the physicians in training was very negative. A lot of ER doctors said, or essentially almost sadistic in the way they looked at drug addicts, that, you know, we're really going to make this uncomfortable putting that tube down. And, and it's sad. I think that, um, I think part of the problem is people don't understand what addiction truly is and that it is a disease. It's a de- disease that affects on several levels, but it, it's, it's not a, uh, unfortunately, a moral choice. It's not the fact that t- most people who become addicts are not immoral people or unethical people. They are, addiction is a symptom of a far greater problem. Uh, I was taught everything by my parents, morality-wise and ethically, uh, ethically. I lived a life that was incredibly moral and ethical for many, many years, but then when you become addicted to something, all of that goes out the window. And you start, it is an insanity that takes over your life. And you find that you start doing things as a result of your addictions that are not what you would do normally. And we'll talk a little bit more about that after this commercial break. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Why do people behave the way they do? The study of human behavior is one of the most interesting facets of life. Human behavior gets played out in a limitless number of ways. Now, there's a radio program that explains the why and the how of what we do. Human Behavior, What a Trip, is hosted by Dr. Jonathan Brower and will include interesting guests as well as call interaction from people like you. Let's have fun with this together. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, our guest today is Dr. Stephen Farber, who has written a book called As Sick as Our Secrets, as well as Behind the White Coat and Stepping Stones to Success. Before we went to break, we were talking about some of the um, barriers, if you will, and, and you kind of got cut off before we went to break. Do you want to say more about that? Well, I think the barriers to really dealing with physician are the, the denial about addiction that we have as a society. I think that we tend to sweep addiction, the total topic of addiction, under the rug until somebody dies from it who's very famous, such as Michael Jackson or Whitney Houston. And suddenly it, we talk about it on the air and CNN and whatever, all the news shows, and then we sweep it back under the rug again. And we try to hide people who are addicts. We tend to um, label them as the dregs of society. We want to put them in prison. And... You know, putting a marijuana user in prison does not help them, okay? I think that we, if anything, prisons uh, are where a lot of people find drugs. And I think there's no real program to help them when they get, when we just put them away, tuck them away in prisons. Um, and uh, But there's issues on a societal level. I think there's condemnation, a lot of judgmentalism. And there's a lot of denial in the medical profession about the problem as well. So... I think that it exists on multiple levels, and, and the solution to addiction also is has to be on multiple levels as well. Well, and I think for for physicians, there's a, the added stigma of um, the the shame and the guilt because you know um, we were kind of saying in, during the break is that physicians have egos, and sometimes those egos are very hard to interact with. But the reason they have them is because they need them to make the decisions that they make. And some people manage those egos very well and other people don't. And you have to admit that you're powerless or you're vulnerable. That's, I imagine, would be a huge uh, barrier to a physician seeking help. Well, addiction is firmly rooted in the ego. <clears throat> and I'm a good example of somebody who you know, was firmly rooted in my ego and I, be- I believed that I had all of my issues under control and that I can manage my use of Xanax or other drugs, which uh, later I turned to harder drugs. And I didn't believe I had a problem, but as most people in recovery or who are involved in recovery understand is that you have to surrender your ego to live a life of recovery, and that, that is the first step. You have to make that you're powerless over your addictions. And um, a lot of people think doctors are egotists, and, um, you know, some are. Um, but I think that that ego is what you know affects all of us. It's not just physicians. Um, we all tend to carry our egos with us, and 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 a lot of people actually describe. I've heard um, addiction is described as somebody an addict is, is somebody with an uh, who has who's an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. The and I, that's really true. I think a lot of addicts truly in, inside feel inferior. They feel uh, psychologically filled with negative self-talk and have spiritual, or, or basically void spiritually. So I think that it is something much, much deeper 
that the ego essentially covers up all of these internal problems. But you have to sometimes reach a point, I did, of desperation uh, to surrender that ego. I, I had to hit rock bottom to finally realize that I had a problem and that I was an addict and that I needed help. And that was the start of a new life for me, and uh, that occurred seven years ago. Uh, but I've learned that desperation is sometimes what we need. We have to sometimes reach that bottom, and that bottom can be different for all of us it, it, you know, when we reach that point. But, um, again, desperation is something that is what is required to uh, make you realize that you have a problem and, and to address your own inner problems and to surrender your ego so you can really address your psychological traumas and spiritual problems that you've had perhaps your whole life. Mr. Farber, what was your bottom? My bottom was when I lost my career in 2007. I had used cocaine for about a year and a half. As I said earlier, the use of Xanax opened the door to other drugs, and I actually resorted to using something very illegal, and very unfortunately, I lived to tell about it because um, a lot of people don't who use cocaine. And um, I, it eventually, again, it, affected, it, helped me, it helped my depression tremendously. I was suffering from very severe depression burnout later in my later years in medical practice. And I was desperate to, do, to find anything to relieve my psychological pain uh, that I felt as a result of my depression and burnout. And uh, a, fr- a person introduced me, I won't say a friend, <laughs> But a person introduced me to uh, cocaine. And initially, cocaine was an incredible stimulant for me. And it helped my depression. Uh, it helped me focus. I also have ADD, attention deficit. And uh, that helped me focus. And I felt, wow, I can control this. You know, and I, you know, it, it, and fortunately, it isn't insanity because the, the, um, as I used to tell my patients for many, many years, uh, cocaine will you know, cause heart attacks. As a cardiologist, it didn't make sense for me to take cocaine, especially because I knew better. But I was so desperate to find a way out to, out of my suffering that I felt, my mental torment, that I, was, I, was, I resorted to using something that, that terrible and to uh, do something that I had never thought I would do. And, you know, I, the, my, down, my, my um, bottom was also the fact that I alienated my friends and my closest friends and my family. Uh, it basically robbed me of relationships that I had with some of the closest people. I, I hid my addictions extremely well. I was very good at it for a long period of time. As the, top, as the title of my book suggests, you know, we are as sick as our secrets. And um, when you carry these things inside and you're hiding your issues and your problems and you your ego does not let you and your shame does not let you come forward to ask for help. You become buried in it and the shame worsens. It's a snowball that gets worse and worse over time. And uh, that's what happened to me. I, was, I hid my addictions. I hid my problems from even my closest friends. And I was afraid to ask for help. And I didn't realize too much later that you can't deal with this by yourself. One of the solutions to addictions, or if you want to say one of the the most important things to realize in recovery is you cannot do it by yourself. You need the help of other people. But, you know, over time I realized that my worst periods really are what led to my life changing for the better. And I think a lot of people don't understand that 
sometimes you have to go through the worst periods possible. They can even they could ever imagine, and a lot of people have gone through far worse than me. They've lost lives. They've lost uh, entire families. They've gone through divorce. They've um, killed somebody in a car accident. Um, they, the, the people have gone through incredible amounts of things that are, that lead them potentially changing or turning their lives around. I just happen to write about my problems, about my history. But um, you know, the, this bottom that I hit took many forms, and it led me to a life that is totally different over the last six and a half years, and it's for the better. Well, and you, and, uh, the thing I like about the title of your book is that um, you're as sick as your secrets is something that um, people hear in addiction treatment and in um, self-help all the time because um, oftentimes it's those secrets that lead somebody to relapse or it's those secrets that keep people from embracing um, a spiritual component to their recovery or it just keeps them isolated. And, um, you know, it's a concept that, that some people really struggle with. Uh, that's correct. <clears throat> that's very, very. That's very correct. I think a lot of people, as I said earlier, do not understand addiction and what it involves on on so many different levels. And the solution to addiction is also it also exists on a societal level and on an individual level. I think it has to be tackled on from both directions to be to have a society deal with the epidemic that we have now, which is really destroying the fabric of our society. It is. It is. And. Um, this is just my own personal opinion, but I think that um, we need to revamp the whole process of physician prescribing medication. I don't think people should just get a blank check to prescribe whatever, whatever, because they have a MD after their name. Oh, that's absolutely that's true. Me. I think there has to be more accountability in the medical profession. There's no question about that. And I think just like pilots are randomly drug tested, I think that physicians should be also. I think that any profession that involves the putting of lives into the hands of others is one that should be more accountable to the public and um, to the profession itself and needs to be regulated. Actually, the medical profession should regulate itself. And I think, unfortunately, it's not done a very good job of that. And it's done a very poor job of educating physicians about the horrors of addiction and the tendency for physicians to become addicted. And... You know, the government is not, has not really, it should not be the one responsible for doing this. Um, I think the medical profession should do it, but unfortunately it hasn't done that. So what was treatment like for you? Treatment for me was a painful process initially, and my denial and, I, and my resentments were incredibly strong. At the time when I lost my license, I blamed the world for all of my problems, and I didn't take responsibility for anything. I initially wallowed in self-pity and uh, thought that I was wronged and uh, that this shouldn't have happened. I should not have lost my life. And later, obviously, my feelings about that changed as I went further into recovery and realized my was willing to take my role in things and take responsibility for the things that happened. But I think initially most addicts who go through interventions, and I, I did go through intervention, with my office staff, and that helped save my life. Uh, most people have anger. They feel resentment. They feel the victim. They play the part of the victim. And that's a very dangerous role. So when I first entered rehab, uh, I was very rebellious. I didn't think that people knew what they were doing. Again, part of that being a physician and feeling that you know everything, <laughs> you know, how to deal with patients, for example, I had to learn to put that ego on the back burner and leave my MD degree at the door 
when I went into rehab, and that was hard. That was hard. Physicians are taught to be in control, and I was of situations, and I was wanting to be in control. And uh, even during my my rehab, I did not want to leave leave the control at the door. And you know, again, the medical profession, most most patients want their doctors to be in control, and I think doctors are trained to be that way. And that's part of the ego that we talked about. But um, it was a painful process. And we'll be right back right after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuzo to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Stephen Farber, who's written As Sick, of our, As Sick as Our Secrets, which is um, a good read. Um, it's also, it's very um, heartfelt. Um, you really open up, I think, all of your secrets in this book, but in a way that, 
it's not modeling, but it's for people that I think can identify with that. At the end of the book, you have reflections, and I was wondering if you could share some of those reflections with our... Well, the the reflections that I wrote about were things that I, topics that I had learned over a period of six to six and a half years of recovery that I've of sobriety that I've lived. And there are things that I think that are lessons that were taught to me by people who've been in recovery for long periods of time. There are a number of things that, um, ways to live a life that you learn in recovery. And a lot of what I wrote about relate to how we deal with our fears and how we deal with our insecurities and a lot of our problems that relate to, there, there are several things I think that predispose to addiction. And some of those things, for example, include ne- negative self-talk feelings of worthlessness, self-doubts, the talk inside your head that says you're not good enough and that you need something artificial to make you feel loved and that you're lovable and worthy of self-love. I think a lot of addicts are really void in this area, really devoid of self-love and uh, feelings of uh, really feel deep down that they're unworthy and take something to, to cover that up and bring about an artificial peace of mind. We all want peace of mind. Peace of mind is our birthright. But somewhere along the way, we lose that. And unfortunately, we tend to, to cover that up with drugs. But we, the underlying problems, I think, with addiction go way back to trauma and to feelings of a negative self-talk and feelings of worthlessness. So I write about these things, and I write a lot about the 12 steps of recovery and how to deal with our resentments. And to, be, to have a recovery that's a really true recovery, uh, is a spiritual transformation uh, in your life. And, and for me, I, I was not one who, although I was brought up religiously, I was not spiritual. And for me, my, I was angry at God for a lot of my life and never really believed in a higher power of God. And I think throughout recovery, I found some peace with God. I, I was able to reconcile some of the things that I had felt that were so negative about God growing up. I went through a lot of trauma uh, with a, a sexual abuse growing up. And that I, I was angry at God for a lot of my life. I was angry because uh, my son died. I was angry because for a number of reasons and felt that God wasn't there for me. And, you know, all along he had been. And I just hadn't realized that. But the lessons I learned in recovery were that it's so important to deal with it, that addiction is a symptom of a far greater problem that underlies uh, it all. And those problems relate are on three levels. They relate to our, our negative self-talk, psychological issues. They relate to physical dependency and uh, and compulsions. And uh, the other thing is a spiritual void. And all of these things need to be addressed to be, you know, have a really, really good recovery. But for me, I wrote about my spiritual journey through recovery, and it has been a progressive spiritual journey and one that will never end. But in my reflections portion of the book, I talk about the solution. Uh, The first part of the book is really dealing with the problem and and what happened in my life that led to my addictions and that how they took form and how they start and how they took form and how devastating they are. But the reflections portion of the book is really deals with the solution. I think the solution is what people need to know about. Uh, addiction is not a death sentence. It is a conscious, you know, the uh, recovery is a conscious choice that we can make. We have a choice. Do we want to live or do we want to die? Do we want to have a life of sobriety where good things can happen to us, or we want to wallow in self-pity, fear, and self-doubt. And it really comes down to it being a conscious decision at some point. Uh, You obviously have to learn to deal with your traumas, and that often requires psychiatric help and psychological help. I think it's 
important for people to seek that help and to reach out and not isolate. Again, I wrote a lot about isolation. I think a lot of addicts tend to isolate out of fear, out of shame, out of feelings of self-doubt and unworthiness that they're not good enough, they don't fit in, they're afraid, their fears can can, start to take control of their lives. And uh, when you start making fear-based decisions in your life, you get into trouble with them. So what the what I wrote about was I did write a lot about the 12 steps and the importance of, of the 12 steps and of having a sponsorship and a mentorship and helping other people and uh, about a lot of the underlying lessons um, in, in, that I've learned in recovery. Um, re- recovery is complicated. It's, the program is simple. The 12-step program is simple, but it, it's a simple program for very complicated people. Uh, addiction, as we discussed during the break, addiction take many forms. We all tend to have an addiction to something whether it's food, alcohol, shopping, eating. There's so many forms that addiction takes. Uh, smoking is another one. And, um, you know, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. For me, I found that as I beat down one addiction, another one will pop up and try to take its place. And unless you deal with the underlying problem that the, addic- the addiction is a symptom of, you're going to continue to follow the same pattern. Uh, insanity is trying to do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And that essentially is what, if you're, if you're trying to deal with addictions without getting to the root cause, it, 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 it's going to be very hard to have a successful recovery. Uh, but for me, I think that the solution uh, of, 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 to addiction resides on multiple levels, but on an individual level, you have to get to the root of the problem. And, you know, the 12-step program is a very, very good way to, to get at that. I think that whatever works for a person works. But my own personal solution was found in that program and working with others and learning to deal with these hidden fears that I carried with me and the shame and the guilt that were controlling my life. And throughout that process, I realized that I'm very lucky to be alive. I think um, I have a lot of gratitude uh, in my life and I've read a lot about gratitude. I think that that we are as as healthy as our degree of gratitude. And if you feel like you're, you're going to sit and feel sorry for yourself, that your life is terrible, I think you lose out on that chance to, to be happy. And uh, I feel incredibly, uh, have an incredible amount of gratitude for the fact that over the last six and a half years, I have seen the promises of recovery come true that people talked about. I'm closer to my children now than I ever was. My, my children tell me that uh, they, they like me better. They've always loved me, but they like me better as a father since I've been in recovery, that, that I'm there for them, I'm present for them in a way that I never was before. And that's something you can't put a price tag on. But that wouldn't have happened if I had not gone through recovery and had not worked the program and really dealt with the underlying problems that I had to deal with. And we all have these, these problems. I, it's certainly, my story is one I think that almost everybody who's listening to this program can relate to. We all have these problems, these fears, a lot of things that we're afraid to address and come out in the open with. But again, we are as sick as our secrets. We have to be willing to reach out to other people to get help, and we have to be willing to reach backwards to give people help as well. And I think that for me, writing this book was a huge, um, well, it was a huge undertaking. It was my attempt to reach out to other people, and I feel that even if I could help one person through what I wrote, I think it'll all be worth it. And it, How can people get your book, Dr. Farber? Well, it's available on Amazon.com and okay. BarnesandNoble.com. But the, the okay. easiest way is just to um, is to go through Amazon, and, and it's, it's available there. 
Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Well, I appreciate it. I hope that my message of hope is, is, is gets out there and uh, that there is a solution, and I think that's important. So thank you very, very much for having me on the air. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.